Thank you, Dr. Garland, and thank you uh, and Associate Dean, Dr. Tucker, for your guidance and leadership in this tenure process. It has been a uh, trying experience at times, but very healthy and encouraging experience from your leadership, and I want to thank all of my colleagues, the faculty, uh, as well as all the staff and the whole Truett community uh, for being such a supportive place. Uh, this is a place I'm proud to be at and be a part of and proud to invest my life in. Uh, I also want to thank my wife, who is here. I think she's finding a parking place, uh, but she has probably sacrificed more than anyone for this. Uh, not, she's done countless things, not least of which bringing me my notes that I had left at home this morning. And so. Um, Please say hello and thanks to her when she comes in. I also want to give you the uh, chance, if you would like to move closer to the front. Uh, I have a lot of pictures, and some of these pictures aren't as big as I'd hoped they would be on the screen. So I'm going to get started for time's sake. Feel free to just move on up while I'm talking. I know you're all good Baptists, so you sit at the back, but I'm a good Baptist minister, so I invite you to walk the aisle. Well, let me begin with a simple question. Who is this? This is, this is Jesus. Now, for the not-so-simple question, is this Jesus? Is this really Jesus? Today, I would like to talk about icons. One of the last chapters of a book I'm writing on early Christian heresies is about iconoclasm. Iconoclasm, or the breaking of icons, was deemed heretical at the Seventh Ecumenical Council Nicaea 787. At this council, iconoclasm is said to be not simply a heretical practice, but a Christological heresy. It is a denial of the incarnation. Now, as a Protestant, I confess that this was a difficult chapter. Protestants, beginning with Luther early in his career and uh, extreme, reaching extreme points with Zwingli, were iconoclastic. Zwingli painted over the murals in his church walls and even went so far as to drag his pipe organ out into the churchyard and shatter it to pieces with an axe. I'm a good Protestant, and we Protestants want to know, how could the early church have overlooked the second commandment? On the other hand, I struggled in this chapter because while I am a devoted Protestant, I'm also a big fan of the early church, as you probably all know by now. I love both of my parents, and I don't like it when they fight. I don't want to have to choose sides. The more I read on the iconoclast controversy, the more I found iconophile arguments compelling. So in this lecture, much of what I'm trying to do is move beyond the bare history of what happened in the 8th century and sort out the relationship between iconoclasm and iconodulia in my own thinking. Perhaps I should go ahead and make a confession up front. I have icons. I even have icons in my office here at Truett. Here's one I bought on our class trip to Istanbul of Christ. Here's another uh, icon given to me from an Egyptian friend. Sorry, that's not very clear. That's the Madonna and Child. It's made by Coptic monks. Uh, this, too, is an icon, although it's a three-dimensional statue, not what we normally think of as the paint and wood in Eastern Orthodox iconography. But the Greek word icon simply means image. So even statues can be considered icons. Here are some icons of which I am especially proud that I'll have in my office. All of these are images, but of course, these are not the kinds of icons we mean when we talk about church history. This icon, with which I began, is believed to be the oldest verifiable icon of Christ, Christ the Pantocrator, the ruler of all. It is from St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. To help us think about my question, 
is this really Jesus? Uh, let me show another image, a more modern one. Simple question. What is this? This is a pipe. Now, the not-so-simple question. Is this really a pipe? If you can read the script at the bottom of the painting, it says in French, Ceci n'est pas un pipe, which is French for this is not a pipe. I had this up on my home computer as I was preparing the slides, and my son walked by and said, what does that say? And I translated it for him, and he said, well, of course it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. <laughs> when the Belgian painter René Magritte painted this in 1929, it caused quite a stir. What do you mean, not a pipe? Of course it's a pipe. Is there some sort of sinister or depraved double meaning here? The title of the work, The Treachery of Images, gives away part of what Magritte is getting at. The painter responded to the outcry with this statement. Ah, the famous pipe. How people reproached me for it. And yet, could you stuff my pipe? No, it's just a representation, is it not? So if I had written on my picture, this is a pipe, I'd have been lying. Magritte has simply brought into sharp relief the gap between our images and the reality the images represent. Before too long, post-structuralist and post-modern philosophers like Michael Foucault and Jacques Derrida will use Magritte's famous painting as illustrative of the problems that all of our symbols and even our language faces. The problem known as the postmodern condition. This is and this is not a pipe. This is and this is not Christ. This morning I will explore the dilemma we face with icons as heirs of an iconoclast and the iconodual traditions. I will first briefly outline the history of icons from the earliest centuries of Christianity. Then I will review a few examples of theological justifications of icons, mostly from the Middle Ages. Unfortunately, time will not permit, permit me here to engage the details of the Protestant views about icons, for there is a wide range. Even Luther took a favorable view of icons later in life. Instead, I will assume that we as Protestants have something of a love-hate relationship with images, and I will end by surveying some examples of this tension in our theology and see if some of the insights from early and medieval iconology might not be helpful to our current thinking and practice. So let us begin with the earliest icons. Tradition tells us that when King Abgarus wrote to Jesus during his earthly ministry, Jesus declined his invitation to come to his city and heal him in Edessa, but instead promised to send a disciple after the resurrection. Eusebius records this event. If you had TNT 1 with me, you read it on the first day of class. The later version also tells that Jesus allowed his image to be painted. I apologize, that's dark. Uh, but this is the famous miraculous healing power of Jesus' image, allegedly the first icon. A similar story is told about the Veil of Veronica, part of the uh, medieval Stations of the Cross tradition where Jesus slipped in his own sweat and blood, and Veronica came and took off her head covering and allowed Jesus to wipe his face with it, and his image was miraculously imprinted upon it. More reliable data about the earliest Christian iconography can be found in other artifacts from the earliest Christian centuries. While it is tempting to assume that icons entered Christian practice as a part of the so-called Constantinian fall of the church, in actual fact, there is much evidence of Christian iconographic practice prior to Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313. In fact, while many assume the use of images stemmed from Greek or pagan practice and are inherently foreign to Christianity's Jewish roots, images were much more common than is often imagined in Jewish practice. The synagogue found in Dura Europas, a town in Syria, dates to the, around the 2nd century AD and it is filled with artwork and images. 
a house church in the same town can be dated to 250, and it offers a similar rich display of visual representation. Another instance of such artistic images can be found in the catacombs. Cruder and rudimentary forms can be found in various Christian graffiti. Even Christian pottery includes symbols and images. Images even appeared in the earliest Christian manuscripts, called illuminated manuscripts, which begin to appear earlier than we might think. When we turn from archaeological artifacts to the surviving writings from the early church, however, we have to admit that the overwhelming evidence turns against Christian use of icons. It must be admitted that the majority of statements about iconoi, or images, are negative in the anti-Nicene writers. On the other hand, many of the same late 2nd and early 3rd century writers know of Christian use of the ichthus, or the fish symbol in Christianity, and they all approve of such usage. Clement of Alexandria goes so far as to explain the difference between the commandment against idolatrous images and other images that God commands the people to make for the tabernacle, such as the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. These images, he says, signify something else. And for Clement, that includes all sorts of allegorical possibilities. This capacity for an image or icon to point beyond it, not to itself, but beyond itself, will be important for all later discussions. For now, it is simply necessary to point out that the anti-image rhetoric of the earliest Christian apologists pertained to non-Christian images which were used as idols. We must admit that the injunctions against images, both in the Old Testament and in the early Christian apologists, prohibit certain kinds of images for certain reasons, not all images. All that remains is for Christians to sort out the tension between this Christian iconoclasm and Christian iconophilia. Part 2, The Theology of Icons. John of Damascus is the first to articulate a full defense of icons. His understanding of icons worked on at least two levels. First, what we might call the level of praxis, he spoke of icons as books for the illiterate. Secondly, at what we might call the doctrinal level, John also spoke of theophany, or manifestation of God. Even in the Old Testament, John insisted, God's theophanies were just that, manifestations of God, not God's divinity made visible. When Abraham sees God, for example, John of Damascus insists, Abraham did not see the nature of God, I'm quoting now, for no one has seen God at any time. But he saw an icon of God, and falling down, Abraham venerated it. Even so, Abraham, in a sense, saw God, John goes on to say, and Abraham correctly worshipped God via God's self-manifestation. So it is for all icons, argued John. The objections from Christians in John's day are likewise twofold. This is the iconoclast response. At the level of practice, icono Dualism is simply idolatry. The iconoduls, in response at the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787, simply pointed out that the Second Commandment is right to forbid depicting God, for God is invisible. And yet, this all changed at the Incarnation. God can now be seen. God, per se, we cannot even imagine, but Jesus we can certainly envisage. Moreover, the divine nature still has not been depicted in icons of Jesus. Icons of Jesus are icons of a human. This answer, however, brings the debate to the second point. At the level of doctrine, iconoclasts now had an easy point of attack. 
Iconophiles are guilty of Nestorianism. That is, they have divided Christ's natures into two. The, uh, they've only depicted the human nature and left out the divine. In response, the iconophiles invoke the Chalcedonian definition in order to express the Christology of the icon. The icon does not merely depict Christ's humanity. It depicts his hypostasis, the Greek word for person. It depicts his personhood. In other words, Christ himself is represented, not just part of Christ. And just as with Christ's presence during his earthly ministry, the divine nature is united to the human nature in the person of Christ, the famous hypostatic union. And yet, not only the human nature, uh, sorry, only the human nature is a visible nature. Icons are no more guilty of Nestorianism than Jesus was. In Christ's earthly presence during his ministry or during his iconic presence in our ministry, the union of divinity and humanity are actualized by Christ's personhood, even if the divine nature remains invisible and unimaginable. Now, during the second wave of iconoclasm under Emperor Leo V and his son Michael II, this argument was renewed and had to be answered by thinkers like Theodore the Studite and even the Empress Theodora, Michael's widow and an avid iconophile. The icon of Christ, it is said, is like the image made in wax by a signet ring of the emperor. The honor is respected in the wax seal because it points beyond itself to the ring of power itself and even to the person the ring signifies. The honor uh, is... Sorry, so with an icon, the paint and wood image of Christ is like this wax seal, while the ring itself in this analogy represents the incarnate Christ, who himself is actually the icon of God the Father, according to the New Testament. We'll return to that in a moment. Any attempt to dishonor the icon at any level is now suspect. One last point made at Nicaea 787 and emphasized by Bonaventure a few centuries later is how icons evoke emotion. And they evoke devotion from us. At the Council of Nicaea, one of the most persuasive moments came when a record was read to the council about the great Cappadocian father, Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory had read from and preached on the passage about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac many times. But when Gregory walked past a mural of this scene in the 4th century, the image so moved him that Gregory stopped and wept. The icon in this way of thinking, and especially in Bonaventure's thought, is a spiritual aid to grasp the worshiper's attention and focus it on God and God's work. One final theological point is developed by Gregory Palamas in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. Gregory focuses on the distinction between God's essence and God's energies. God's essence, like the sun in the sky, is unapproachable and unknowable to finite mortals like us. God is ultimately transcendent. On the other hand, God is known to us in God's energies, that is, God's actions, like the rays from the sun. We feel warmth and see light. So with God, the unknowable, mysterious God is revealed to us through divine acts like love and grace. The icon in this way of thinking is much like a stained glass window. This window itself, with all of its design and color, is useless unless the sun shines through it and illuminates it for us. So God, in his invisible, mysterious essence, chooses to shine through and be manifested in concrete ways, like icons that represent Christ. The icon, like this stained glass window, is not Christ. 
and yet Christ shines through it. An interesting parallel can be found from the Western tradition in Thomas Aquinas. Although he does not know of Gregory Palamas's exact understanding of the essence-energy distinction, Thomas comes to the same conclusion in his own reading of the Cappadocian Fathers and John of Damascus. Thomas makes the distinction between Christ in his essence and the presence of Christ manifested in images. In the article Before Images on Christ's physical body in his Summa Theologica, Thomas concludes that Christians should worship Christ's flesh. It would be appropriate were we to be physically before Christ, like Jesus' disciples were on Easter, for us to bow down before Christ, to kiss his hands and his feet, to adore and worship him. If this is true with Christ's physical manifestation in the incarnation and resurrection, Thomas concludes in his article on visual images, then it would also be appropriate any time Christ is manifested to worship the manifested Christ. Whether or not we want to go as far as Thomas in offering latria, or worship, to manifestations of Christ, this distinction is still a helpful one. For Thomas does insist on differentiating the icon itself from the person of Christ himself to whom the icon points. And yet, the two are united in our experience, even if we can differentiate them in our understanding. To sum up the medieval theology of icons thus far, we have what appears to be a sort of conundrum. On the one hand, the icon points beyond itself to Christ himself. This is not Christ, really. And on the other hand, Christ is manifested to us through the icon. Who is this? This is Christ. After all, when standing before an icon, we cannot simply say Christ is absent. How are we to sort out the intricacies of this idea? To assist us, I will invoke three people. The first is the Apostle Paul, and so an authoritative voice from Scripture. The second is Augustine of Hippo, who is influential for all Western thinkers who follow him, be they Catholic or Protestant. And the last is a contemporary theologian who has commented on how the nature of icons can solve some problems we face in our so-called postmodern condition. The voice of the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the image, or in Greek, icon, of the invisible God. In a letter aiming to reconcile Gentiles and Jews, Paul's language is provocative to say the least. Although all humans are made in the image of God, Paul claims Jesus is the icon of the invisible God, which must have sounded borderline blasphemous in light of the second commandment. To be clear, I am not claiming that Paul condones our making of icons. Instead, Paul claims God presented us with an icon, the Son of God, the spitting image of his Father. Paul is helpful in pointing out that the very heart of the Christian faith is a belief in iconism. That is, a belief in God's ability to be revealed. In spite of the fact that God's own nature is, quote-unquote, invisible, God chooses to reveal God's self. How? Iconically. God the Father reveals himself through his Son, who simultaneously points beyond himself to the Father and manifests the Father's presence. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus will say in the Gospel of John. Who is this Jesus? He is God. And yet, he is not God the Father. He is the icon of the Father. It is also noteworthy in this passage that Paul can speak of Christ's own transcendent nature. He goes on in 1.16 to say that in him, or by him, 
all things were created by Christ. And Paul goes on to say that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. In other words, Paul's understandings of Christ's humanity and visibility does not negate Christ's divine omnipresence. Can Paul take the next step and speak of Christ's manifest presence? Paul himself will tell the Colossians in 2.5 that he, Paul, is absent in body yet present in spirit. Surely Jesus is also present in Colossae. In fact, Paul, Paul prays in chapter 3, verse 16, that the word of Christ will dwell in or among the Colossians. The word for dwell being enoikeo from the word oikos, for house. That is to inhabit or literally to be in the house with you. How is Christ in the house churches of the Colossians? Paul says, through such manifestations as teaching, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. That is, Christ inhabits the liturgy of the house churches of Colossae. So then, Christ was not only the icon of God during his earthly ministry, Christ continues to be iconically present in the church's ministry. The next person that I think can help further inform our thinking is, of course, Augustine of Hippo. In his On Christian Doctrine, the bishop launches into what seems to be a long aside about the nature of language. Buckle your seatbelts. Here goes Augustine at his best. Words are signs for Augustine. And among all the different kinds of signs, such as nonverbal signs, words are the most important. And Augustine especially delights in what he calls visual words, that is, words written down in letters. This phenomenon is especially delightful because the written word is a sign of the spoken word, which itself is a sign that points to the referent of the word. This linguistic aside turns out to not be an aside at all. For this point, at this point, Augustine connects the word of God with the Christian scriptures. In the scriptures written words, Augustine finds all the characteristic traits of any sign, including one problem in particular. Sometimes signs can be ambiguous. We do not always know exactly what the referent is for the sign. Much of the rest of his book is devoted to helping ministers overcome this problem with Scripture. Since the exposition of the Word is one of the primary functions of Christian teaching, Augustine outlines all of the hermeneutical tools available, such as language, grammar, and history, in order to help the ministers rightly divide the Word of Truth. However, while all of these help overcome the gap between the ambiguous sign and that which is signified, Augustine knows that the potential for this gap with any sign is in fact insurmountable. It is tempting to lament with Magritte that this is not a pike. I mention Magritte again because the Belgian artist produced this famous painting at a time when modernity had fully embraced a nominalist view of language. The linguistic signs have no essential relationship to the reference signified. Despite the nominalist impulse in modernity, the propositional nature of truth is largely assumed, and so there is a correspondence theory of truth wherein the sign points to that which is signified. And I'm especially referring to the structuralism of Ferdinand de Saussure. The sign, then, is not the signified, and this is not a pipe. Many, however, came to see this gap between sign and signified not as an escape from Platonism, idealism, and realism, but as a problem. Post-structuralists like Jacques Lacan and Jacques Derrida explore just how absolute this gap is. The other is wholly other, Derrida famously insisted. 
On the other hand, in what postmodernists call a double bind, this gap between our signs and what they signify applies even to our concept of gap. And so our signs soon become simultaneously ambiguous, and even our concept of what they refer to becomes inextricable from our signs and concepts themselves. Illustrative of this postmodern condition is Magritte's later work in 1966. Sorry if this is dark, that you can see, but what we have here is Magritte's earlier painting down at the bottom right, but above this painting is an enormous pipe floating in the air, like some sort of platonic form or ideal of a pipe. This sparked the imagination of another post-structuralist writer, Michael Foucault, who wrote a book with the title, This is Not a Pipe. Foucault playfully explores all of the possible reference of the demonstrative pronoun in this painting. To what does this refer? Both pipes in the painting are not pipes. They are paintings of pipes. Moreover, the words themselves in both of Magritte's paintings are not words. They are paintings of words. The paradoxical painting opens up ambiguity upon ambiguity, and Foucault uses it to illustrate how our words, signs, and symbols are, in fact, inextricable from that which they symbolize. The early Magritte said this is not a pipe, but the late Magritte shows that such a stance is ultimately inconsistent with how reality and signs relate. Uh, I have a quote from Foucault. I'll skip that now for time's sake. Uh, But in other words, the attempt to separate the pipe of reality from the pipe symbolized it's not so simple. This is not a pipe is no more true than this is a pipe. By the way, my daughter walked by when I had these pictures up as well, and she asked, what do those words mean? And I translated, this is not a pipe. And she said, well, that's ridiculous. What's it for then, to blow bubbles with? The perichoretic nature of the sign and the signified is much more complex than either the early or Augustine or the early Magritte acknowledged. Interestingly, both the later Augustine and the late Magritte acknowledged more of this complexity. Or perhaps instead of complexity, I should use the the term they both preferred, mystery. In an earlier work entitled On the Teacher, Augustine had explored the problem with the ambiguity of language and only tentatively resolved it. The work referenced above, however, on Christian doctrine, Augustine has found a solution. In any instance of knowing something via a sign, Augustine believes that the sign and the thing signified are united inside the human soul by the logos of God. For the human soul is itself made an icon of the logos. More acutely, the apparent problem with interpreting the scriptures can especially be overcome because the spirit of God opens our mind and heart to be able to know the words signified through the words or signs written down. While at one level, we could look at the verbal signs, the scriptures, and say this is not God's word. On another level, we must say that God communicates through these words that point us to God. What Augustine finds to be guaranteed for Christian ministers and the Holy Scriptures can become true in many other signs, as he says in Book 3. He, this is a quote, He who either uses or honors a useful sign divinely appointed does not honor the sign which is seen and temporal, but that to which all such signs refer. And Augustine specifically names the sacrament of baptism and the celebration of the Lord's, uh, celebration of the body and blood of the Lord. For he insists, quote, as soon as anyone looks upon these observances, he knows to what they refer, and so reverences them not in carnal bondage, but in spirit. All signs for Augustine can point beyond themselves, and sacred signs do so by signifying God. 
and thereby they can manifest God's presence to us. Augustine has been using the Latin word signus. I think you could replace it with the Greek word icon, and his argument would work exactly the same. For the sake of brevity, I'll only mention how August, influential Augustine has become in the thought of post-structuralist and post-modern thinkers like those mentioned above. Not only Foucault and Derrida, but also Hannah Arendt and Jean-Francois Lyotard all ended their writing career by composing a book on Augustine. I suspect that Augustine's thought on the inevitable ambiguity of signs and how ambiguity can be traversed was something of a gratia irresistibilis for the postmodernists who were seeking in their own last-ditch efforts a chance to avoid nihilism. One last thinker I will mention that has engaged the Forest Head problem on ambiguous signs for our own time, uh, he has found Christian iconology to offer assistance. Jean-Luc Marion was a student of Derrida, but in a famous debate, he later broke with Derrida's thinking on the nature of the gift. Derrida believes that a true gift is impossible. But Marion has worked to show that even within a phenomenological framework, we can and do speak of that which is given. One of his early works on this subject turned to the mystical theology of the early church and the iconodulist tradition from Christianity. First, Marion must concede that every time we symbolize God, whether in art or in language, we risk idolatry. This image, whatever it may be, is not God. This sentiment, however, is much more radical than any iconoclast has admitted, for even our word God and any concept of God risks this form of idolatry. When you say or write God, you may have created a verbal idol. And when you think God, you may have created a mental idol. In order to indicate this, Marion also always writes God in quotation marks, which emphasizes that our concept is at issue. This word or concept is not our God. When Marion wishes to speak of God per se, that is the God beyond our verbal and mental concepts, he writes the word like this. That's very small letters, but the O has an X through it, what Marion calls the crossing of God. And thereby he attempts to point us past our idolatrous language to the real God whom our language is meant to signify. Marion can justify this move even in a discipline like philosophy that is not necessarily committed to Christian revelation because the concept of God invoked intrinsically consists of transcendence. God, therefore, transcends all concepts of God. J.B. Phillips's now common sentiment, your God is too small, is always applicable. Once this structure is recognized, then Marion can invoke the icon to show how the reversal of this structure can also be acknowledged. The icon is in danger at all times of being an idol because we can capture it in our gaze. The image, then, is bound in its finitude and made to conform to our image, or at least our imaging. The, the icon, however, is not only capable of being grasped in our gaze, the icon can grasp us in its gaze. And this is a startling realization. Marion is enamored with this idea in light of Heidegger's elaborate discussion on the gaze in phenomenology. The icon captures us in its gaze, and thereby we are grasped by an other. The other has looked to us first through the eyes of the icon, and we are therefore drawn not to the icon itself, but to the one who is given therein. The icon is not Christ, but Christ is present in what Marion later calls the saturated phenomenon. 
Marion completely accepts the radical negative theology of Derrida and yet can still speak of God's gift being given because he agrees with pseudo-Dionysius, John of Damascus, and Thomas Aquinas in saying that the icon is not God and yet God is iconically manifestable and manifested. Negative theology is not iconoclastic. It is the insistence that we are seen from beyond the icon and therefore we must always look through and beyond the icon itself. I'll just mention Marion has uh, a recent book that has come out on Augustine and whether or not the early Marion engaged directly with Augustine's thought, Augustine's thought neatly aligns with those other Eastern writers that he cites in that all agree with Paul on God's self-revelation and manifestation through iconic forms. Third and last part, the practice of icons. In my third and last section, I want to review some possible implications of iconology for our context. First, I think that a healthy and robust appreciation of icons can simultaneously help us appreciate art in our churches and our worship, and, sorry, in our churches and in our worship, and help us avoid the ever-present danger of idolatry. After all, do we not already use icons, even those of us belonging to an allegedly iconoclastic tradition? Above the bishop pictured here, if you can see at the very top, there's a classic uh, icon from the Eastern tradition. This, however, is not an Eastern Orthodox church. This is a Baptist church in the country of Georgia. We, of course, do not need to travel all the way to Eastern Europe to find Baptist icons. We have many images and icons in our Baptist houses of worship, do we not? You recognize that place? This last image, Warner Salmon's famous Head of Christ, has been reproduced more than 500 million times in print. On the one hand, we must admit that we tend to make Jesus in our image. And on the other hand, we must also say that since we always make Jesus in our image, we must find a way to look past the icon to Jesus himself. Interestingly, art in our popular imagination still provides a means of doing exactly what the icon Icons are supposed to do in Christian practice. We still speak of the essence of a painting or the substance of a play. This is not Jesus. This is Ben Affleck from his recent movie, Argo. In an interview on NPR, Terry Gross asked Affleck about when directors are allowed to change the facts of a history in order to tell the story. Affleck admits that the tense climax of his movie... I won't give anything away here, no spoilers, but the scene where they're running through the airport, that was nothing like what actually happened. But he defends himself by saying that that is how it felt to those involved. It's that struggle, he says, between the bookkeeper's reality and the poet's reality. And you make judgments as a director. And my judgment falls really cleanly on the line of it's okay to embellish, it's okay to compress, as long as you don't fundamentally change the nature of the story. And what happened? For me, as the filmmaker, the line is about what I believe is, you know, in the deeper essential truth. I deeply, deeply believe that one has to stay true to the essence of the events that you're telling because you are conferring meaning. Affleck is right. Art is iconic. I suspect that the iconodulist tradition is also right. Our worship can be and should be iconic. To return to Solomon's portrait of Christ, there are letters of testimony submitted to the Warner Solomon Foundation that have been made available on the website. 
Most of these are from firmly committed evangelical Protestants. One such admirer writes, There is something about Warner Salmon's pictures that makes me feel that this artist had felt Christ's presence when he made the images. And you can feel Christ's presence conveyed to you through his images. There seems to be a holy radiance emitted from the image. I will admit that such sentiments make me nervous. Our congregations are in danger of naively slipping into idolatry. Perhaps our response, though, should not be one of strict iconoclasm. Perhaps we should retrieve a robust iconology. The same kind of phenomenon occurs in our Protestant use of the Bible. Who is this? This is Joel Osteen. I show this picture because Osteen is simply one of the more prominent representatives of biblicism that borders bibliolatry. Every sermon, Osteen leads the audience in holding up their Bibles and reciting the following statement. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I won't read the whole quote to you. Many have criticized Osteen of teaching not the Bible itself, but his interpretation of the Bible, his image of the Bible. We, of course, do not want to get rid of Bibles, nor do we wish Christians would revere the Bible less, but we do want a more robust doctrine of revelation. Compare the image of Osteen with his Bible in the air, with this Russian Orthodox bishop kissing the gilded scriptures. I do not ask you to judge whether you prefer Osteen's Biblicism or the Russian Orthodox version. I do ask you to judge, uh, to consider which is the more consistent. In our Southern Baptist heritage, we have a debate between the 1963 Statement of Faith and Message and the more recent 2000 Statement. The older version speaks of the Bible as, quote, the record of revelation, while the more recent version simply calls the Bible the revelation. Now, to be honest, I'm not entirely satisfied with either. The scriptures are not just a record of revelation, as if to say, this is not a pipe, nor do I want to replace the revelation of God in Christ with paper and ink, as if to simply say, this is a pipe. Of course, I am caricaturing and oversimplifying both sides, but I suspect that Augustine is relevant here when he says that the scriptures work in an iconic way. Another example that I think illustrates how iconology is veritably inescapable and in fact helpful in our context has to do with creeds. Baptists have a perennial debate about creedalism and the nature of non-creedalism. I have published elsewhere in defense of non-creedalist theology, but that is because I am a-creedal, not anti-creedal. I am a-creedal because I think that creeds are neither the primary text of our faith nor the final expression of our faith. Instead, they are an intermediate state, a confession of faith, which points back to the object of our faith and speaks forward as a subjective witness of the faith. The credo, the I believe, is not static. It is a a dynamic and living symbol. And here I think it's noteworthy that in the early church, creeds were actually called symbols, the apostolic symbol, the Nicene symbol. Symbol. Creeds are iconic. It is the faith as a manifestation, a faithful, charismatic pointing to that which is believed. By understanding creeds and statements of faith as symbols and icons, we can avoid making them sacred cows or even idols, but we can also use them to express our faith appropriately. 
Corresponding to our confession of faith and creeds, I think our understanding of witness, evangelism, and ministry can be informed by iconology. The Christian minister in the classic Christian tradition has been said to stand in persona Christi, that is, in the person or the role of Christ. The minister stands where Christ should stand and performs the role of Christ. The minister says the words, do this in remembrance of me. But we all know that these are Christ's words. I think we can once again see Paul's thought as informative here, where he says in Romans 8, 29, those whom he did foreknow, he also did foreordain to be conformed to the image or the icon of his son. This idea that we stand in the place of Christ and play the role of Christ still expresses itself today. You've probably been exhorted to live an evangelistic life because, quote, you may be the only Jesus some people ever see. This well-intended sentiment, however, could lead to a replacement notion of the minister as the vicar of Christ, as seen in its most common form in megachurches driven by the cult of pastor personality and in its most institutionalized form in the papacy. Again, I suspect that a robust iconology could help us appreciate the truth that Christian ministers do represent Christ, and yet they are not Christ. They are icons of Christ. Ministry, to oversimplify, is iconic. It is standing before this world and pointing to God. Now, as a final word, let me return to the iconoclast trajectory in our Protestant tradition. Is iconoclasm always a heresy? Is there never a need for iconoclasm? If we look back to the iconoclasm of the 8th century, where Emperor Leo III declared a war against icons as a means of plundering churches and monasteries so that he could melt down the gold and silver to fill his own treasuries, then it is easy to denounce iconoclasm. When, however, we look to the abuse of icons, relics, indulgences, and other extremely problematic items in the late medieval Catholic tradition, then iconoclasm itself seems necessary. I think of the scene where King Hezekiah cleansed the temple in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18. One of the many icons displayed in the ancient temple was the bronze serpent made by Moses himself in the wilderness. But Hezekiah found that the people of God were actually worshiping this image as an idol. What did he do? He broke it. Iconoclasm. There are times when icons become idols and must be broken. I wonder if we could interpret the temple of Jerusalem in the same way. The temple was always meant to point beyond itself to the transcendent God who does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. The temple itself, however, can be turned into its own form of idolatry, and it can be destroyed. It was in the 6th century B.C., and it was in the 1st century A.D. God is iconoclastic. Isn't this evidence that we should be iconoclastic like God? To answer this, I turn to a parallel debate that I've used elsewhere between Karl Barth and John Howard Yoder. During World War II, Karl Barth opposed theological pacifists because, he insisted, God is free and therefore free to condone war. Barth then proceeded to clarify that war is to be avoided unless one claims to have a spiritual discernment in which God has in fact chosen to go to war, such as in Old Testament times. In a somewhat surprising move, Yoder responded to Barth's view by, in fact, agreeing. God is free to do what God wants, even to exact judgment on earth through war. However, not so surprisingly, Yoder still disagrees with Barth's conclusions. Yes, God is free to go to war, 
But how does Barton know that the Allies in World War II were in fact carrying out a divine mission? To do so, one must claim spiritual discernment, and apart from this bold claim, no Christian can rightly resort to mortal violence. I think the same kind of argument could be applied to iconoclasm. Yes, God sometimes destroys images, golden calves, bronze serpents, even the temple in Zion. In fact, to return to Paul's claim that Christ is the icon of God, God even carried out the greatest iconoclastic act imaginable by sending his son to die on Calvary. Yes, God is iconoclastic, but God is also an iconophile. God, even though this temple was destroyed, after three days raised up this icon. Yes, there are times in our context where God calls us to iconoclasm because icons are always in danger of being made into idols. But until we can in all honesty claim that we have spiritual discernment into God's will, we should probably be reluctant to join in iconoclastic acts. Instead, we may hope to find a more incarnational and redemptive approach where iconology is exactly that, being captured by the gaze of Christ himself through his various manifestations in our life. I think all that I have said can be summarized in one final anecdote. My church, University Baptist, is full of icons. There is a statue of Jesus that greets you on the right as you come in. With one hand, he's unveiling his sacred heart, and with the other, he's holding out to you an offering of peppermints. As you walk further through our doors, there are images of Our Lady of Guadalupe, reproductions reproductions of God and Adam from the Sistine Chapel, and a strange mural-sized reproduction of Da Vinci's Last Supper painted in black and white, like the negative from a slide of film. Our first year in Waco and at UBC, my parents and grandparents, all lifelong devoted Baptists, came for a visit, and we took them on a tour of our church. As Josh Carney, our teaching pastor, I'm honored he's here today, as he was showing us around the church, we passed the water fountain over which stood a wooden statue of St. Francis of Assisi. My dear sweet grandmother, who has macular degeneration in her eyesight and so is legally blind, grabbed me by the arm and pulled me over to the corner and whispered not too quietly, David, is this an idol? I simply responded, yes, Meemaw. Now, shh, keep moving. (laughs) I'd like to think that much of the forms and trappings in our Christian religion is iconic and not idolatrous, but I'll admit that I may often be wrong. Perhaps all that I have said today could be summed up in that same answer. Could this, whatever this is, be an idol? Yes. Now, shh, keep moving. Thank you.